Ladies and gentlemen, hello. I'm Andrew Roberts, the Roger and Martha Mertz Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, and I'd like to welcome you to my new podcast, Secrets of Statecraft. The title derives from Sir Winston Churchill's reply to a young American who asked him for some life advice as Churchill was walking through Westminster Hall on the day of the Queen's coronation in 1953. Study history, study history, Churchill said, for therein lies all the secrets of statecraft. I've been an historian for 30 years and have written or edited 18 books, and in this podcast series, I'll be talking to prominent people about the role that history has played in their careers and their decision-making, and also to fellow historians about how the past influenced the people they've written about. In the course of it, I hope to eke out some of the timeless secrets of statecraft. We start the series off today with General David Petraeus. As commander of American-led coalition forces in Iraq, he was the person who executed the successful surge there in 2007, before going on to take command in Afghanistan in 2010 and becoming CIA director in 2011. David, who taught you history? Uh, I'd be very interested to hear about whether or not there were any charismatic history teachers in your past. Well, there were, and it's a great question, Andrew, but uh, first, it is great to be with you again, uh, and a real privilege to walk point for you or with you on your new and exciting endeavor. Um, The answer to your question, um, who taught me history, is really a substantial number of individuals over the years, not all of whom were teachers or professors at the time. Uh, I did have some inspirational professors of history at West Point. Um, one of whom, uh, John Wagelstein, uh, I think a major lieutenant colonel at the time, went on to be the commander of the special forces group focused on Latin America and the military group commander for the U.S. effort in El Salvador, which I later studied. Of course, he was a true soldier and scholar with infectious enthusiasm for history and someone who made a bit of history himself. Um, there were there was a similar individual in the staff college who added fuel to the interest already ignited in me for exploring Vietnam. Uh, My greatest mentor in graduate school, Professor Dick Ullman, was a great student of diplomatic history, past and contemporary, and he sparked a keen interest uh, in me to do further reading on the memoirs and biographies of uh, American presidents, secretaries of state and defense, the most prominent generals of the 20th century, uh, and leaders of other countries and, and militaries too, not the least of whom was, of course, in recent years, the subject of your exceptional biography, Churchill. Uh, who truly was walking with destiny, as your title so aptly captured his life. Uh, My father-in-law, General Bill Knowlton, was a true soldier, scholar, statesman, and a true lover of history. He encouraged wide reading of World War II and Vietnam in particular, both of which uh, he served in with distinction. But he also loved historical fiction. And he advised me to read, for example, uh, Cecil Woodham Smith's wonderful book on the British in Crimea, The Reason Why, uh, John Masters' uh, wonderful Bugles and a Tiger, uh, Anton Mirror's Once an Eagle, uh, and even the Flashman series. Uh, I, could only take, <laughs> I could only take one or so of those every other week. But, but again, all of these had um, helped you accumulate to build intellectual capital, I think, on which you could draw later. And in truth, as, as I think about this, um, my own parents really were a huge uh, feature in all of this. They really introduced me to history. They surrounded me with history books g- growing up. 
my mother was a part-time librarian. They were always reading them themselves. And uh, at least several weeks each summer, uh, they'd take me around historical sites in the northeastern and eastern U.S. Uh, as a kid. Uh, my dad was a former Dutch sea captain. He also loved historical fiction, such as C.S. Forrester's Hornblower series, uh, and Forrester's other real classic, in my eyes, the very slim uh, volume, The General, uh, such a powerful and instructive book of fiction, to be sure, but one that captures the uh, tragic failed leadership uh, of World War I. And I've repeatedly recommended it to young officers uh, as the real essence uh, of it is often elusive. It requires discussion. They have to dig into it to recognize that this otherwise quite admirable figure, not a Chateau General, doesn't get it about the nature of combat uh, and has failed in the most basic task of a senior leader, which is to get the big ideas right. Uh, finally, I, you know, I, I like to think that I taught myself history, uh, to a degree at least. I did a lot of research into various aspects for my academic and professional endeavors, seeking to learn not just what transpired uh, according to a particular author, of course. And of course, sometimes they wrote their own history, as Churchill certainly did very effectively, uh, but also to learn what lessons I should take from what I was leading, um, reading in terms of leadership, professional insights, and so forth. And I studied particularly assiduously the prominent combat leaders, uh, all the greats, um, Napoleon, on whom you wrote so brilliantly as well, Wellington, Grant, Pershing, <clears throat> MacArthur, Slim, Eisenhower, Ridgway, Marshall, and so forth. Um, and I did uh, enjoy historical fiction, uh, again, also including the wonderful Sharp series, which I've just been revisiting, <laughs> in fact. So, I look, in truth, I think studying, reading, and learning from history is particularly important for soldiers, uh, because our most important task, uh, fighting wars, is not generally what we spend most of our time on while in uniform, except maybe for the decade following the 9-11 attacks, generally you're preparing for, you're getting ready for, you are um, exercising, training, and so forth, you're not actually doing. And if you can't expect to learn from actually being in war, uh, then I think you need to learn from the experiences of others in war, and I certainly uh, sought to do that. And that very much brings us on to your PhD uh, dissertation, doesn't it? When you were yeah. in, uh, at Princeton in 1987, you wrote this dissertation, um, uh, The American Military and the Lessons of Vietnam, a study um, on military influence and use of force in the post-Vietnam era. I mean, it was about the impact, obviously, of the Vietnam War on America's senior military and the way that they gave advice in the future to, uh, to presidents. Um, it's a, uh, I mean, I, it really ought to be published because it's a real page turner, which is not always the case, I can tell you, with PhD dissertations. Not I sure mean, anyone a has lot of them actually are, described it in that uh, way, but thank you very no, much. A lot of them are dry as dust, but this one could be published uh, uh, tomorrow. But what would you uh, say were your most important conclusions from that, uh, from that thesis? Well, the big takeaway um, was that Contrary, I think, certainly at that at the time of you know the 1980s, contrary to popular perceptions of senior military leaders as the individuals who are chomping on cigars uh, and pushing their civilian leaders to use force in a crisis, uh, the generals were actually much less hawkish than the most aggressive of the civilian policymakers. Sometimes to the point of frustration uh, with some of those 
cabinet secretaries and others. I remember there was a, a question one time from a secretary of state during the deliberation on the possible use of force in Bosnia uh, to the effect of what's the purpose of having this magnificent military if you never use it? Um, mm -hmm. And the reluctance to recommend the use of force was particularly pronounced in the wake of Vietnam. Uh, certainly there had been, you know, there was a no more Korea school of thought that influenced military thinking and advice for some time. Uh, which what you call the uh, the never again club? That's that. Well, was, the never again was club was really that's really the the, the never again on Vietnam. Um, certainly, Korea. There was you know a perception by some in the military that we'd had to fight that war with one arm arm tied behind our back. Um, you know, later on there was even a tiny bit of a no more Beirut school to uh, come back to that. Um, unhappy uh, excursion in the midnight in the early 1980s there was a no more somalia school to a degree in the 1990s but far and away uh, the most prominent of these was the no more vietnam uh, school of thinking that gave rise to such principles and the use of force uh, as those known as the powell uh, and weinberger doctrines um, i saw a good bit of this firsthand as the executive officer to a chairman of the Joint Chiefs for two years in the late 1990s, uh, and some years earlier as a special assistant to the NATO commander uh, and also aide to the chief of staff of the Army in the late 1980s and early 1990s. Uh, in fact, it was the 1990s, that, that early period, um, that a lot of this was very, very much uh, in, in play. And indeed, General Powell was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and we did carry out interventions in Panama uh, and in the Gulf War and the Arabian Peninsula. But of course, always overshadowing this uh, was this inclination um, to be very reluctant about the use of force, uh, but then to advise that if you are going to use force, Mr. President, after ensuring that you have domestic political support, you've established attainable objectives, uh, you have a clear exit strategy and so forth, if you decide to do this, don't hold back. Use all that is needed and, and, and more. Use overwhelming force, in fact, was the term, so that you can swiftly accomplish your objectives, which, again, should be clear and attainable, uh, and also uh, a clear exit strategy that's executed after a modest amount of time. Um, now, this is only applicable, uh, really, to a very, very small subset of the contingencies uh, that one might envision, and yet it was seen as sort of these are the guiding principles. And again, all of this was largely a reaction to the searing experience that more than a generation of military leaders had as young and mid-grade officers in Vietnam, uh, a generation to which the soaring rhetoric of the early 1960s, such as the bear any burden, pay any price phrases in John Kennedy's inauguration ad address rang pretty hollow uh, in the yeah. 1970s and for several subsequent decades, frankly. The, um, this podcast is, is being called um, Secrets of Statesmanship. It's coming from uh, a Churchill quote at the time of the coronation in 1953. Churchill was crossing Westminster Hall and a young American came up to him and asked him for some life advice. And Churchill replied, study history, study history, for therein lies all the secrets of statecraft. Um, and in your dissertation, you state, I'm going to just quote uh, a sentence, historical analogies are particularly compelling during crises when the tendency to supplant 
uh, sorry, to supplement incomplete information with past experience is especially marked. Could you, can you tell us why that is? Sure. Um, crisis decision-making almost inevitably, invariably involves very, very pressing problems, crises uh, that are evolving very rapidly and often quite alarmingly, uh, resulting in situations where one has less than all the information you'd like to have. There's need for urgent decisions. The pace of meetings and demands becomes grinding. The participants get tired. And I guess, understandably, decision makers grasp for historical analogies to guide them. Uh, in fact, there's quite a body of scholarship on decision-making during crises. And among the findings is that the tendency to seek lessons from past crises, and to do that in particular if one personally experienced especially memorable and painful episodes, such as, of course, Vietnam was uh, for an entire generation of military leaders. Uh, and one of the general conclusions is that the greater the crisis, the greater the propensity to draw on the past, and particularly on that comprised by past personal experiences. Well, and, and, and that brings me on to my next question, because in that uh, PhD, you also wrote, history can mislead and obfuscate yeah. as well as guide and illuminate. I mean, you, 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 you make this point uh, um, more than once. Um, so in, in your view, with your own career, um, which were the greatest misleading features of history that you had to face when, when you were looking for past analogies, especially in crises? That kind of examination um, was something that I certainly tried uh, to, to pursue. But, you know, I, as I think about the analogies that really did um, hang over the shoulders of leaders, say, in the 20th century, uh, I think one of the most prominent examples was the so-called Munich analogy, uh, an allusion, of course, to the historical episode uh, in which British Prime Minister Chamberlain tried to appease Hitler at Munich, uh, which, of course, famously failed and resulted in further German and Italian aggression, the fall of the Chamberlain government, and the parliamentary selection of Churchill uh, to be the prime minister. Now, many leaders... Yeah, there's now a, a revisionist uh, thing. There's a new movie going to be coming out... Uh, that argues uh, by Robert Harris, a movie of, um, uh, based on his book, that actually says that it was a great triumph and that Munich was wonderful because it allowed uh, Britain an extra year to rearm and so on. So, I mean, this, this debate sort of goes on and on. But what you're saying is that the, is that the original belief about Munich, which was, it was a disaster, has been misleading in other crises. I mean, the classic one, I suppose, being the Suez crisis, for example. I mean, that's certainly one of those, but I think there were many other cases um, throughout the Cold War in particular, because, of course, what you were doing, you know, the West was dealing with this very assertive Soviet Union, uh, again, yet another authoritarian uh, regime and so forth. I think it, it actually did color decision-making or influence decision-making at critical junctures um, in Southeast Asia, um, certainly perhaps the Berlin blockade, the maybe the Cuban Missile Crisis, again, a number of Cold War episodes. Um, you could argue that it's actually something that people are drawing on right now as uh, the effort to deal with the very aggressive posturing of Russian forces by Vladimir Putin uh, is provoking a crisis uh, at the present time. Again, I think the Munich analogy is one of the more 
significant um, uh, historical episodes from which individuals do try to draw uh, illumination for the crises with which they're dealing at the time. Do you um, think it's you know Chamberlain you in Munich? Chamberlain yeah. in Munich has really become synonymous with failed efforts to appease an aggressive authoritarian well, leader. That's right. But I wonder whether or not, isn't it just you, the, the ones you mentioned, um, the Berlin um, airlift and, uh, and of course, the, uh, um, the Cuban Missile Crisis. I mean, both of those, the decision makers were people who remembered Munich personally, didn't they? Um, JFK uh, was the son of the ambassador to, to London. Uh, so I, I wonder whether or not they had experienced this... the result. They experienced World War II, <laughs> Precisely. which again, at least arguably, could have been prevented yeah, exactly. or halted. Yeah, if, if Munich had gone differently, exactly. Exactly. Um, but uh, but do you think still today people are uh, uh, affected by if a statesman was accused of of pulling off a Munich or a, or being a Chamberlain like figure? Do you think they would uh, care that much? Do you think that history is well known enough for that to hurt? Well, of course, it depends on the decision maker. Uh, is the individual someone who dipped back into history? Is the individual familiar with, uh, again, the effort to appease Hitler at Munich uh, and how mm -hmm. it so famously failed? Uh, again, as always, this depends on the actual individuals who are engaged in the process, in the conduct of crisis decision-making. So, and, you know, were there other experiences that they had or other uh, historical episodes uh, on which they draw uh, in a particular case? I mean, you could also say that, you know, the red line in Syria that was not a red line uh, is actually something that individuals in this U.S. administration remember, uh, because, of yeah. course, they experienced it as members of the Obama administration, uh, and now they're trying to ensure that that uh, is not something that uh, might influence. Uh, indeed, you can argue that uh, Afghanistan has called into question uh, the U.S. dependability as a partner. And it, it, oh, certainly, yeah. Don't do worry. We have determination, <laughs> and indeed, the He'll awareness that. of that actually might color some of the decision making and the recommendations made by those advising policymakers. You noted that Robert Jarvis, um, who wrote, uh, the only thing as important for a nation as its revolution is its last major war, which seems even more true today than uh, for the US when he wrote it uh, back in 1976. Um, you also quote Ernest May, who, who said that policymakers ordinarily use history badly. So how could we encourage policymakers to use history better? Is it just a question of, of reading better history and thinking about it in a different way? How, how can it be used as a resource more successfully than it is at the moment, in your view? Well, I think that the, the very short answer before giving a somewhat longer one is to really understand the history, to understand all aspects of a particular situation, every uh, element of it, uh, the context, uh, the different features, and then, you know, how are they relevant to the case uh, at hand? But uh, first, I should just note, I think that uh, Bob Jervis was exactly right. Uh, in fact, I think he is one of the truly exceptional path-breaking academics in the study of crisis decision-making, as well as in perception and misperception uh, in international politics, which is actually a title of one of his 
great books. He was also, by the way, a wonderful human being and generous mentor to his students and someone who sadly passed away uh, just recently. Uh, the late Harvard professor Ernie May, who wrote the classic work Lessons of the Past, was a towering figure in the field of so-called applied history and a hugely thoughtful writer on these subjects. I studied the works of both um, back in the day in my academic period when uh, doing that dissertation, and, and I believe they are still among uh, the classic thinkers in the field. But to answer the question again, specifically, the key is to truly understand in great detail the context, the circumstances, the various aspects of a particular historical situation uh, to enable a truly deep understanding of each particular case, uh, to understand the same about the situation at hand, the crisis at hand, and then to appreciate the similarities and the differences, et cetera, between the historical case and the case at hand so that decision makers and advisors can truly determine whether the historical case can help illuminate or may actually be irrelevant or misleading. Yeah. The, By the um, way, if I could, I also should add, in all of this, decision makers also have to be aware, as is absolutely possible, of their own preconceived notions and inclinations in order to ensure that they don't try unwittingly to employ history to buttress their particular argument or recommendation, again, or inclination in a manner that's not fully founded or justified. That's a well, really that's right. you big get, challenge. You get that from the Paul Katzenberg observation, don't you, who said in 1980 that hardly anything is more important in international affairs than the historical images and perception that men carry in their own heads. Which actually brings me on to a great question, I think, for, for you. What do you think your own preconceptions have been? You know, if everyone has preconceptions, when you were drafting the counterinsurgency field manual uh, and obviously planning the surge in Iraq, what historical precedents did you have in mind and what did you learn from them? Well, it's another wonderful question because I work very hard um, Well preparing for the invasion of Iraq and then winning Iraq as a two- and three-star general um, to draw on historical and also personal experiences uh, to craft the right strategy at my levels. Again, I wasn't trying to you know, craft the entire strategy for all of Iraq. Um, I was trying to do it as a division commander for, say, northern Iraq. And in my case, I drew on my study of previous counterinsurgencies and my own experience during a summer in Central America, which included trips to El Salvador, which had a superb uh, national plan, uh, counterinsurgency plan. The chief of operations for the UN force in Haiti, a true blue beret, not a U.S. dual-hatted. Uh, so the experience of contingency operations and so forth. The chief of operations for the NATO stabilization force in Bosnia uh, for a year when I was dual-hatted as the deputy commander of a U.S. Special Operations Task Force conducting the war criminal hunt and then counterterrorism in the wake of 9-11 attacks. In fact, in the absence early on in northern Iraq, after we'd done the invasion, the regime had collapsed, <clears throat> we toppled it, and, and we were moved north for the 101st Airborne Division. Um, in the absence of substantive guidance from above where the leadership was changing, um, I sought uh, to use the civil military campaign plan that I'd helped develop or refine in Bosnia as an example of what we should do, <clears throat> noting the very considerable differences in the situations, but it still proved of considerable value, even if we had to perform all of the 
civilian as well as military tasks at that time due to the absence of any really substantial U.S. or international civilian uh, elements. Yeah. If I could, because then really comes the big time. I'm back in the States after my three-star tour in Iraq. It's clear that we need a counterinsurgency field manual. And then we scoured counterinsurgency campaigns. Uh, those in, you know, in Andochine, Indochina during the French time, uh, and then the U.S. Uh, in Vietnam. Um, mm. The counterinsurgency campaigns in Algeria, Oman, I love that one. And also that wonderful book, um, We Want a War. Uh, by the the British general who was there as a colonel or a brigadier, Malaya, the Philippines, and so forth. Uh, We sought to distill our own lessons from our initial years in Iraq and Afghanistan. In fact, I was in a position where I could encourage. I controlled military review, the doctrine, all of the education uh, courses for our commissioned, non-commissioned warrant officer leaders throughout the army, and on and on. Um, I actually had a oversaw the conduct of counterinsurgency writing contests. Uh, I did my own writing and reflection and publishing, um, tried to set the example. And then there was considerable discussion on all of this as the manual was being drafted. Um, In some cases, they were resolved by my brilliant and very thoughtful West Point classmate, Dr. Con Crane of the Army War College, a student of history and counterinsurgency, whom I had classmated or shanghaied into being the editor-in-chief of the effort. But frankly, at a certain point, I had to resolve some of the most heated of the debates. And I personally did as many as 20 to 30 drafts of some of the early chapters that established the foundation for the entire manual. Where by the way, one of the emphases emphases that we made (laughs) was on the importance of constantly learning, of being a learning organization. For as I wrote in the preface or the forward, the the side that learns the fastest typically prevails. And we tried yeah. to do that when I returned to Iraq to command the surge for which this was the intellectual foundation. And what do you think? Um, I mean, those are the preconceptions that, that you have. What do you think in the future um, people who fought in Iraq and Afghanistan will have in terms of their preconceptions, uh, you know, say 10, 20, 30 years down the, the line? Well, again, I think it will depend on how well those drawing on those experiences um, have come to grips with the context, the facts, the circumstances, the situations, and so forth. Um, And of course, how applicable those may be to a crisis or situation at hand. Um, Early on, I felt there were some pretty profound lessons that we should have um, learned from the early years of the invasion of Iraq. And I'll just give you those quickly, and then we can go on to the greater lessons from the overall engagements. But but quickly, I thought that first, a lesson we sh- should learn is, you know, you really should have a deep understanding of a country and all aspects of it before you invade it. Uh, the truth is, we really didn't have that kind of understanding. And I think our actions uh, betrayed that. Uh, you know, we fired the entire Iraqi army without telling them what their future was, not understanding this is the one national institution in the in the country, and you know, then fire the entire Ba'ath Party down to level four without an agreed reconciliation uh, mechanism. Again, these were catastrophic decisions that again reflected a lack of understanding of the country. Second, you, do you think that's true of Afghanistan as well? Do you think there was a lack um, of understanding about what that was like? it was, and in fact. 
the diff one different there are many differences between Afghanistan and Iraq. In fact, I laid these out for Secretary Rumsfeld when he asked me uh, to do an assessment of the situation in Afghanistan coming home from a three star tour in Iraq. And I did that in the very first slide. The title was Afghanistan does not equal Iraq. And I laid out all the differences and, and essentially uh, Afghanistan being vastly more difficult. One of the differences over time, though, was that we, at least in Iraq, because of the sheer number of forces that we had, we actually developed experience pretty rapidly. By the time we conducted the surge, we had a huge advantage. Almost every commander on the ground had done at least one, or in some cases, two full-year tours. Um, I'd, I'd already been on the ground for nearly two and a half years by the time I went back uh, for that third tour as the commander of the surge. Um, so again, over time, we got that. Afghanistan, it took us much longer because we didn't even get the inputs right, the inputs mm -hmm. in Afghanistan until nine years uh, into that particular effort. Uh, but to come back to what we might have learned from the early days in Iraq, the second is that you shouldn't carry out operations in a campaign uh, with pickup teams, you know, creating the coalition provisional authority several weeks into the occupation of Iraq and all the elements that it created. Uh, instead, we should have just established an embassy. We should have used existing organizations. It would have been much, much smoother. And then constantly asking uh, the big question, will this policy or operation create more bad guys than it takes off the street? Um, and if the answer to that is no, you're supposed to go sit under a tree until the thought passes. And again, <laughs> clearly, clearly firing the Iraqi army without telling them their future and debathification without reconciliation violated this enormously and created hundreds of thousands of enemies of the new Iraq rather than individuals who were incentivized uh, to support it. But, but beyond that, if I could, Andrew, there are the really big lessons, and those are the imperative of developing what I have termed a sustainable, sustained approach to a situation like Afghanistan, in which sustainability is measured in terms of uh, the expenditure of blood and treasure. And my thinking is that if such approaches can be crafted, um, and I'd actually argue we actually had reached that point in Afghanistan, nonetheless, two presidents were so frustrated that they decided to withdraw. But if you can achieve that kind of approach, our population is likely to be relatively unconcerned or even aware uh, that we're still engaged in an endeavor like Afghanistan uh, and others. So I think going forward, the key is this sustainable, sustained commitment, uh, which I think is very possible to achieve. Yeah, but hasn't President Biden just ripped that up completely um, by, by not sustaining it and uh, um, essentially he, withdrawing? He certainly did not observe that particular lesson, if you will. <laughs> you can say um, that again. <laughs> that, that said, I actually think that our action there has actually magnified the importance of that particular lesson. And you will not see this administration withdraw from Iraq, Syria, Somalia, West Africa, North, all these other locations in which we're engaged uh, in keeping an eye and pressure on Islamist extremists. Because I think you feel we, they've, they've learned their lesson over the um, catastrophe at Kabul. In a sense, relearned the lesson, because again, a number of individuals were part of the red line that was not a red line in uh, Syria as well. Um, so, now, and, and again, but again, I think that actually, 
And by the way, they're aware that in doing what we did in Afghanistan, and by the way, I, I, you know, I think it's fair to recall that when I heard of the decision to withdraw, I said publicly that I feared that we would regret that decision. And I sadly, I think that events have validated that particular observation. But what the withdrawal also did is it called into our question, uh, called into question our uh, determination, our dependability as a partner, uh, frankly, our very competence in carrying out military operations. Uh, and all of that is of crucial importance uh, because of the need to deter uh, activities around the world, arguably to deter Putin right now. Well, uh, actually, that was my next step. That, that and was I, would be, my next I would caution him. Do David, not, that was going to be my next question about, about the way in which um, the past uh, actuates the, um, the assumptions and the actions of people like Putin, because he very much does see himself, doesn't he? In a in a long Russian past, which includes Peter the Great and actually probably Ivan the Terrible, um, but certainly including Stalin too. I mean, who he seems to have a much uh, higher regard for than any other um, previous uh, Russian leader um, has for for Stalin over the last fifty years, anyhow. So, what do you think? And we'll come on to the rest, the the the, the mullahs and uh, and the Taliban and so on and the Chinese, because I'm very interested to hear your views on how historically um, uh, cognizant are our enemies and protagonists. Again, it depends from decision maker to decision maker. This always comes down to individuals, their appreciation of the circumstances, facts, features, elements of the particular historical episode. And in this case, actually, I would caution those who might draw from the decision on Afghanistan a conclusion that the U.S. is not willing uh, or it is not determined, it's not dependable, um, they will do that at their own peril. I think in many respects, this was a decision that was taken by one individual who has was quite de determined to do what he did. Um, founded on a number of years of frustration with the situation in Afghanistan, about which he was very vocal. Um, and advisors recognized that. And even though there were other recommendations offered that included a sustainable, sustained approach, nonetheless, the decision was taken. But that, I think, is, and I hope, a one-off um, and is not one that should be seen as indicating a lack of will. If anything, again, I think the administration recognizes the need to shore up its reputation, to shore up its image, uh, to shore up the perceptions of potential adversaries uh, about but our will. Because if you think about deterrence of actions we don't want to see happen, there are two components to deterrence. There is the adversary's perception of your capabilities, and there is the adversary's perception of your will to employ those capabilities. And we cannot allow that to be seen as lacking. And I think this administration, a lot of very bright folks, recognize that imperative. And as a result of Afghanistan, they'll be even, even more conscious of it. Uh, Doesn't he fit in? Um, more determined. Don't, you think, don't you think that President Biden fits in very well with your... PhD thesis um, in, in that 
I mean, he has. He was a, he was a senator at the time of uh, of uh, Vietnam, wasn't he? Back in nineteen seventy six. Um, so, do you think that he must have taken away preconceptions from um, Vietnam that that still sort of are, are there, consciously or unconsciously, in in his mind when he when he looks at Afghanistan? I think much, much less so than for the military leaders who actually fought and served in Vietnam and experienced the, the loss and the sacrifice and so forth, um, only to see it all swept away uh, later on. And, and again, I think for them, it was an extraordinary cautionary tale. Um, you know, there were some in the army that arguably went so far as to try to structure our military or our army so that we actually couldn't do another operation like that without actually calling up the reserves. One of the, quote, lessons was that, you know, we because we didn't call up the reserves, we didn't use everything that we had available. Uh, so make it make it that make that almost a requirement that will also, in a sense, really bring it home to the policymaker that now you're, that's a big deal. You're not just using your professional forces. Uh, now you're calling on the, the civil, the, uh, the, the citizen soldiers, if you will, and yeah. communities will now feel this. And again, it will have a, I don't know, a chastening or what have you uh, influence on such a decision. Um, can we go back to the, the idea of, um, of what actuates our enemies in terms of uh, of history, um, because it's you were of course director of the CIA in 2011-2012, uh, so you've you've looked into the minds of uh, of these people uh, as far as it's possible to do. Do you think the Chinese, for example, um, Chairman Xi is is historically um, hoping to uh, to uh, avenge himself of 500 years of Chinese humiliation and all these other various myths, historical myths that they've built up over the years? Well, there's, again, um, occasionally it helps to read what individuals say, and certainly a theme um, among Chinese leaders, particularly in recent decades, has again uh, harkened back to what you just described, in particular the century of shame and so forth, yeah. uh, but also um, seeking to learn from the Soviet experience. Um, the lesson of which is, again, don't get weak need. Um, you know, they look at Gorbachev and feel that there were alternatives at that point. Now, Putin does the same. Putin has said, of course, he said famously in the previous century, that, you know, the worst day of the century or history is the day that saw the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Um, and that's a very worrying again, concept, isn't it? You know, we should, we should be deeply concerned by remarks like that, shouldn't we? Well, we should be cognizant of it. Again, we should be aware of it. And I think, again, to be fair, I think our decision makers are actually keenly aware of it. I think the China watchers um, are keenly aware of it. And again, I think the Chinese themselves, again, for very forthrightly, have um, offered a lot of this publicly. This is not all something that had to be ferreted out by intelligence services. It's quite instructive to read what, uh, again, any potential adversary uh, says publicly. Uh, they often reveal their inner thoughts. And that's the case, I think, with Chinese leaders. It's the case with leaders really around the world, by and large. It, it, it was certainly definitely true of Hitler. We, we should have just listened to what the man was actually saying, but instead of 
that uh, constantly people try to uh, go one stage further or one stage deeper and think of something else. But uh, uh, he gave quite enough clues to what kind of a person he was for um, uh, decades. Um, I've got a few questions. I I mean, if I could, uh, Andrew, you you Hmm. might argue, in fact, you're the British historian, one might argue that some of the British leaders had overlearned the lessons of World War I, which was such a horrific experience. No, absolutely. Uh, I mean, to the point of just we must do everything possible uh, to to... avoid war. Of course, that was what gave rise to the pacifist movement and the great universities of uh, Great Britain at that time as well. Very interestingly, actually, the people who actually fought in the trenches uh, people like Alfred Duff Cooper and uh, Winston Churchill himself, uh, of course, Harold Macmillan and others, were very often the anti-appeasers. And it was the people who uh, didn't see active service, uh, like Sir John Simon and uh, um, Neville Chamberlain himself and, uh, and others, who were the, the strongest appeasers. It's the, it's the sort of exact opposite of what you'd expect and, and much closer to um, a, a sort of interesting thesis about people's perceptions of the Germans, essentially, and the, and the danger that uh, it posed to the balance of power in Europe. Now, I'm going to... a great to dissertation ask... topic for you. Ah, As I there recall, you go. Um, <laughs> in spite of all of your extraordinary volumes and achievements over the years, I think there is still a PhD lacking from that That's list of titles. That's very kind of you for pointing that out at the age of... I'm 59 now. Uh, thank you, David. I'm going to uh, ask Never you a questions, old. if I may, um, that I'm going to ask all of my uh, guests in this podcast series. Um, and the first one is, if you were able to give a historian in 100 years' time advice about a good source to use if they were writing your biography, what would it be? That's a wonderful question, because I think... My service, particularly the wartime command service, uh, bridged that period uh, during which we still did a lot on paper uh, and went to a period, an era in which almost everything we did was on email um, or even in video conferences, um, global video conferences. And they're all kept, are they? They're all recorded by the army, the video conferences. A historian in 100 years' time will be able to get I don't know. Uh, the most important of these were the weekly conferences that video conferences that Ambassador Crocker and I had with President Bush and his entire national security team that started at 7.30 in the morning every Monday in Washington. If you want to show what's important to you in Washington, bring everybody in at 7.30 on Monday morning and begin with an hour on that particular topic. And that's what precisely what President Bush uh, did. Please, but be, please but tell so, me those were recorded because they'd be invaluable for any future they, historian. They would be invaluable. Um, now, at that time in the surge in Iraq, I still wrote weekly memos uh, that went simultaneously to the Secretary of Defense, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and Commander of Central Command. Those do exist, and those have been a lot of those have been declassified. They're in my papers at the National Defense University. Um, and then, but then it's really getting the emails because the emails are the back and forth. Yeah. And some of these are, are pretty pointed as well. I uh, remember <laughs> sending one to my boss at one point in time that noted that a particular request for forces had sat in his electronic inbox uh, for, you know, a number of weeks and that we were actually fighting a war out here and trying to get on with it. And if 
you know, if he's not going to approve it and send it on, uh, you know, send it forward. But, but again, if he is going to approve it, if he's going to say, no, please do that, because I intend to raise it with the president uh, the following Monday morning at our weekly normally scheduled video conference, which is, again, a pointed uh, yeah. response, uh, as you might imagine. But so those will be invaluable. But then also um, I did a lengthy at least eight to 10 hours um, right as I was retiring uh, interview at the National Defense University. It was done, in fact, by a professor, Michael Hanlon, who had the security clearance for it. Uh, so an oral history, if you will, at that point in time when all of this was quite fresh in my mind. And I think that will be very useful. So, so it won't be the easy task, um, again, with respect that maybe you have had in the past where you go and you look at Churchill's papers, it's all written, it's all, you know, you have annotations on the side, it was all done uh, by hand. Now it's become much more complex. And I think yeah. the challenge is very, very considerable. And what's going to have to be required is that individuals will actually have to understand what was done, because if you don't even know it exists, you can't request that it be released in a Freedom of Information uh, Act request or a declassification request. Which so is why I'm, which is, which, which is why I'm positing the hundred years. I mean, the hundred yes. year rule will uh, will will apply there. Okay, next question: What's your favorite what if? Uh, counterfactual history event. Everyone's got one. What's yours? Well, I, you know, of my enormous admiration for Ulysses S. Grant as a general. Again, yeah. you know, just I think unequaled. Uh, without him, um, Lincoln literally might have lost the election, his re-election bid in 1864, and you literally might have had McClellan win, and he would have sued for peace. So, I mean, that's a huge counterfactual. But it also yeah. brings to mind. Um, remember James Thurber um, wrote this entertaining article in Scribner's, I think in the late 1930s, it was titled, If Grant Had Been Drinking at Appomattox. Uh, and in it, you may recall, he describes a rather inebriated and very confused Grant actually surrendering to Lee rather than, <laughs> than the other way around. By the way, Scribner's delighted in this. They, they did a number of these essays. There were several others that I actually looked some of these up. If John Wilkes Booth had missed Lincoln, you know, when he assassinated him. Um, yeah. Again, if Lee had won the Battle of Gettysburg. Uh, actually, Winston others. Churchill wrote one of those for a, for a collection of what-if uh, essays uh, in by edited by a a British um, journalist called J.C. Squire. What? What if Gettysburg had gone the other way? It's an, it's a it's, it's a classic. It's a huge question. And and really, what if Lincoln hadn't found his general? Uh, if he hadn't yeah. found Grant, brought him east, made him the commander of all Union forces, um, and then and only then did you finally have a strategy for the overall war. And if that hadn't happened, if Sherman hadn't taken Atlanta in accordance with that strategy, if if uh, Sheridan hadn't taken the valley, Lincoln, again, very conceivably could have lost his bid for re-election in November 1864, and we would not have the union that we still enjoy today. So when I ask you what uh, history book you've been reading and, uh, and enjoying relatively recently, I expect Ron Chernow's uh, uh, Grant would be one of them, wouldn't it? It is, actually. Uh, and it's interesting because I read it when it came out several years ago. I actually interviewed yeah. Ron uh, several times on different stages uh, in, in New York and at the annual 
Grant Monument Association dinner, uh, the same uh, with Ron White and his wonderful biography. And interestingly, I've actually been looking at those two plus Bruce Catton's uh, book, Grant Takes Command, which was one that I was reading, of all things, just coincidentally, um, when I was conducting the surge. It was a book given to me by someone, a historian at Fort Leavenworth, before I went back to Iraq. I put it in a rucksack. It ended up on a bedside table, and I started reading it, and I found it um, hugely inspirational, uh, instructive, uh, informative uh, to experience through Bruce Catton's eyes what Grant went through as he was conducting, if you will, his own surge, not trying to equate the surge in Iraq with the U.S. uh, Civil War. I should also note, though, and and this is quite forthright, I'm also reading and enjoying very much um, your latest biography, which you gave to me when I was in in London the last time on George III, who, of course, lost America on his watch, but who also presided over the decades-long struggle on land and sea with Napoleon in France, and who really is a much more fascinating figure uh, than the mad King George image uh, that many of us have had of him. Oh, you are kind, David. Thank you very much indeed. I hugely appreciate that uh, that last minute plug. I've got a uh, I've got a one more question before I say goodbye to you, uh, which is: Do you think it's possible to be on the wrong side of history? Oh, absolutely, it is, um, yeah. and I. I think just think of those who vehemently oppose the abolition of slavery um, or universal suffrage um, or the concept of evolution, um, the possibility of men flying, um, heck, you know, rock and roll or the fact that the world (laughs) is round for that matter. Um, There have been innumerable cases throughout history of individuals with unshakable convictions about one or another issue who subsequently have been proven completely and utterly wrong. Even our mutual hero, Churchill, um, yeah, well, he was certainly he wrong to with regards to... Ultimately uh, on the wrong side of history in a number of issues. Uh, His lots. views on race, colonialism, yeah. Gandhi, strikers, unions, early on at least... And, you know, yes, they reflected the views of his class in England at that time, perhaps the Edwardian age. But ultimately, he did end up being, you know, on the wrong side of history on some of these issues. And, of course, it's a wonderful source of criticism and debate now. In which yeah, you don't, I mean, you don't have to stop there. He was, he was wrong on the general strike. He was wrong. Sorry, not yes. the general strike, the abdication crisis. He was wrong on the black and tans in Ireland, on women's suffrage, which you mentioned earlier. The key thing, I suppose, and this is a good way to end up this this, uh, conversation, is that uh, he, of course, was absolutely right on the really important things that that That, matter. And that is the key. And that is why he is and should remain on a pedestal. But, But, Andrew, if I could, before we bring it to a close... You know, the potential of being on the wrong side of history should absolutely haunt decision makers, uh, as frankly it did me um, when I was leading huge endeavors like the surge in Iraq or the war in Afghanistan or the CIA, for that matter. And one of the ways that I sought to try to be on the right side of history ultimately was by seeking illumination from the past, you know, helped by thoughtful historians and experts, some, certainly you among them, seeking intellectual challenges from red teams and critics and contrarians, you know, preserve and protect the iconoclasts and the contrarians. Um, don't put them in charge, maybe, but keep them in your in, inside the tent. 
by trying to understand in a very nuanced, granular manner the circumstances uh, of the endeavors in which we are engaged and perhaps those in history that might, again, provide some insights to us. So, you know, the key, not just to understanding the present to the extent possible, but also to understanding the past and how it might inform the present is all about this deep understanding uh, and so forth. And maybe I can bring our conversation to a close by recalling the old adage that you have heard from me more than once before, which is that luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. Now, I've been said to be lucky. I have often offered that perhaps that was true, timing and so forth, but I also did work very hard over the years uh, to try to be prepared um, in, for what might arise in the future. And, and part of that has been a pretty assiduous study of history to get that nuanced, granular appreciation of the past and if of relevance, how they might help inform us as we grapple with contemporary challenges, crises, and so forth. Fully understanding the merits and also the hazards of the use of history in helping to guide us. And in view of that, uh, again, I'm most appreciative of the opportunity to discuss the use and occasionally abuse of history in seeking guidance, insights, and illumination, uh, noting, Andrew, that there is no one with whom I would have rather had this conversation, given that you're among the most preeminent historians and biographers of our time. Thank you, my David. friend. <laughs> David, um, I can't think of a better way to have kicked off this podcast series than that this avalanche of praise that you've given me today I, it's probably the last time anyone's going to say anything nice uh, to me over the next uh, couple of years but nonetheless thank you so much for uh, for appearing on our first show pleasure as always and delighted to walk point i'd like to thank david petraeus for being my first guest thank you for listening Join me on the next edition of Secrets of Statecraft when I'll be speaking to Victor Davis Hanson about ancient history and what it can tell us about today. Best wishes till then. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org. 